sermon with um, is, good Lord, how am I going to preach this? Because on the face, the passage that we're going to read today looks like it covers a very specific group of people. And anytime you read a passage and it talks to a very specific group of people or talks about them, the first question is, what in the world does this have to do with me? You know, when I'm reading about 144,000 specific people in Revelation chapter 14, what does that have to do with me if I'm not one of those 144,000? Well, it actually has quite a lot. Um, all of God's Word matters to all of God's people. Uh, and what I want us to look at today is my great aunt is uh, in, bless her heart, she's, she's in her mid-90s. She's in a living center right now in Soperton. I love her to death. My mom is taking care of her right now. Uh, but even in her mid-90s, if you hand her a Coke, she's going to ask you a question. Is this a classic Coke or is this a new Coke? And we look at her and say, Aunt Neat, they hadn't made new Coke in a long time. And for very good reason. Uh, when Coke changed their formula to new Coke, it was a historic failure. No one liked new Coke. So Coke went back to their old formula and branded it classic Coke. That this is the way Coke had always been. And so as a result, uh, they now market Coke as the real thing. Do y'all remember that, 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 that ad campaign that Coke was the real thing? Uh, well, y'all, there is such a thing as a real thing when it comes to the Christian life. Uh, just calling yourself a Christian does not mean you are one. What makes you a Christian is that hymn that we just sang, the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. That's what makes you a Christian. A Christian is someone who has known the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone who has come to Him and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I have screwed it up big time. That I need you to forgive me. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to make me new. That's what makes someone a Christian because what happens at that point is that Jesus answers that prayer. He does forgive you. He does wash you. He does make you clean. He does give you a brand new start. That He makes you a new creation. But have you ever seen what happens to a caterpillar when it turns into a butterfly? Does it walk around on twigs anymore eating leaves? What does it do? It flies. Its life is totally different. It doesn't look the same. It doesn't eat the same. It doesn't sound the same. Some of us might eat the same after we get saved, but that's okay. We're not caterpillars and butterflies, and that's not really the issue. The point is, after you get saved, your life ought to look totally different than it did before. Right? Okay. So if somebody tells me they know Jesus... But I cannot see any discernible difference between before they quote-unquote came to know Christ and after they quote-unquote came to know Christ. Scripture gives me the, not only the ability, but the responsibility to say something about that to them. Well, only God can judge me. Yeah, that's your problem. God, God will judge you. All of our sin is judged one of two places. 
It is either judged at the cross or it's judged at the throne. And I promise you, you don't want the throne. You want the cross. And it is out of love that Christians say to other people who claim to be Christians, hey, your, your words and your life don't match. And it is that discrepancy that concerns me because I don't want you to be surprised between when you stand before Jesus and He says, depart from me, I never knew you. That's why we say these things. That's why it should be brought up. So today we're going to talk about the real thing. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're just going to read the first five verses of Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women for their virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. <clears throat> and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would bless this difficult passage. Give us the ability to understand it to rightly divide it and help us learn from it and as a result look more like you. And Lord, I pray if there is somebody in here with a false confession, you would make them very uncomfortable this morning to the point that they ask questions. Do I actually know Jesus? It's in His name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, talking about the real thing, I want to talk about this term Christian. Uh, Or maybe evangelical. Has anybody ever heard the word evangelical on the news recently? Yeah, the thing about that term evangelical is that nobody knows what it means anymore. Uh, that word has almost lost all meaning. That word evangelical comes from the Greek word euangelion. It's where we get the word evangelism. It has to do with people who, are, who live in accordance with the gospel. But evangelical has taken on a meaning that it might just mean someone of a particular race. It might mean someone of a particular uh, political affiliation. It might mean someone who is a citizen of a particular country. That evangelical has hardly, it hardly carries any meaning anymore according to its original term. So there are a lot of people walking around who are convinced they are Christians just based on those certain criteria. Or maybe because their mama was, or maybe because their daddy was, or their grandma was, or maybe because they went to vacation Bible school when they were little and they sang a song, cried, and walked down the aisle, and that's why they think that they're a Christian. Um, (coughs) But in reality, the term Christian or the term evangelical has boundaries. Look at verse 1. John, who is writing this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I looked... And behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, the timeline here is very confusing. Because obviously, if Jesus has set His foot back on earth, we seem to be at the end point. Because Jesus returning and setting His feet back on the earth is one of the last things that happens in this book. And yet, it's happening here in chapter 14. So I think what is actually going on here is we're getting a glimpse into how this is going to end at the end of the book that we're looking a little bit into the future because the end of chapter 13 ends on such a dark note. 
The Antichrist taking power and ruling over the earth with an iron grip and people taking his mark in order to buy or to sell. And it really looks at it and him being given authority to kill those who don't worship him. And then earlier in chapter 13, anybody who uh, he's killing the saints, he's given the authority to overcome them. This just looks like a terribly dark situation in chapter 13. But then the Holy Spirit gives John a look in chapter 14 to the way this is all going to end up and says don't lose heart. Because in the end, the Lamb Himself, Jesus Christ, is going to set His feet back on the earth and His people are going to stand with Him. So you don't need to fret. You don't need to fear. So we see the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with Him 144,000 having His Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, some of your translations might say having His name and His Father's name. That's due to a difference in some manuscripts. I wouldn't worry too much about it because Scripture also tells us if you've got the Son, you've got the Father. If you've got the Father, you've got the Son. So if you've got the Father's name, then obviously you know the Son. I wouldn't worry too much about that um, there. But... These guys, these, these particular men, have his father's name written where? On their foreheads, right? Where was it that the Antichrist wanted to mark people? On the foreheads. Or on the hands. This is a direct comparison between Jesus' people and the Antichrist's people. The Antichrist marks his people... Jesus marks His people. The world marks their people. God marks His people. That the world's people follow false messiahs, false lambs, false leaders. God's people follow the voice of their shepherd because He knows them and they know Him. This is a direct comparison between the two groups. Now, who are these 144,000? This is a very specific group of people at a very specific moment in time. This is probably the same group that we talked about in Revelation chapter 7. In verses 4 through 8 of Revelation 7, you can flip there if you want to. It's not on your handout. We're not going to be there long. But John says, I heard the number of those who were sealed or marked. 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel were sealed. And then you're given a unique listing of 12,000 from each tribe. The, The tribes are never listed in this order anywhere else in Scripture. There's very clearly something special about this group. They are... Uh, the first fruits of a converted Israel who has finally come back and said, the Lord, He is God, after 2,000 years of missing the boat, we finally figured it out. These guys are some of the first converts there, and they have a very specific purpose. This group has a unique privilege. They're a unique, specific group, and they are uniquely privileged to stand with Jesus on the mountain at His return. I'm immediately inclined to say these 144,000 are that same group and they are contrasted against those who bear the name and mark of the beast. Now, what is going on with the forehead and with the hand? Why is it that the beast is so intent to put his mark on the forehead and hand of his people and God is so intent to mark the forehead of his people? Well, if you were a Gentile hearing this, this is very cryptic to you. This is very mysterious. Why, is the, why are these the places that the beast wants to mark? Easy, because those are the places that God wanted to mark back in Deuteronomy 6 when He made His first covenant with His people. 
Now, I'm going to go back and read it, and you're going to hopefully see why this is so important. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 1, God commanded Israel way, 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 way back at the end of the wilderness wanderings. Deuteronomy 6 says, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes and all His commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God, the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then this is one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. To this day, when Jewish children are born, this is one of the first things that their parents say to them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Now listen to this. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Where? Why did the beast want to put his mark there? He wants to replace God. Don't worry about His commands. Don't bind them on your hand. Don't put them as frontless between your eyes. You put my name there. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. Now listen to verse 10 and listen to what God says as a response to His command. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and shall take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Do you know this is the passage Jesus quoted when He was in the wilderness and Satan said, All the kingdoms of the world are Mine and their authority, and I give them to whoever I wish. If you will bow down and worship Me, all of them will be yours. And Jesus says, Get behind Me, Satan, for it is written, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Jesus said, I will not worship you. I will not bow to you. I will only worship My God. I will take His commands and I will bind them to my hands and bind them as frontlets between my eyes. I will write His commands on the doorposts of my house. I will talk about them when I sit down and when I rise up. That He will always be in my mind and in my heart. And you are never going to replace that. And the beast says, oh yes I will. You'll put my name here. You'll put my name here. 
You'll talk about me when you sit down. You'll talk about me when you rise up. You will teach your children to follow me. It's dark, isn't it? But in Revelation chapter 14, what's unique about these people who stand with Jesus? Do they have the beast's name? No. They have God's mark. They have God's seal. They never went to the beast. They never said, I will bow down. I will worship. They never said, I'll just be... We can have both. I can buy and I can sell and I can be part of the world and I can be just like everybody else. I don't have to be a complete and total weirdo. I don't have to be totally ostracized. I can have my God and have my culture too. No, you can't. Do you know what the root word of culture is? Cult. Culture is derived from what we worship. It's derived from what's important to us. Who's most important to you? Whose name is on you? Whose commands do you bind on your hand and on your forehead? Listen, you might not have the mark of the beast tattooed on you, but you might live today like you do. (coughs) Who's most important to you? What do you talk about with your kids when you sit down, when you rise up? What's hanging on the walls of your house? What's projected on the screen of your television? What do you teach your kids? What do you teach your family? What do you teach your friends and your co-workers when you sit down and when you rise? If you didn't tell somebody you were a Christian, would they know it? Just as clear as if they could see it stamped on your forehead, they can see who you are one way or the other. Nothing new happens in Revelation 13 and 14. It just becomes obvious. Titus 1, 15 and 16 says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Christian doesn't just mean whatever you want it to mean. The Christian family has boundaries. Say, well, God's gracious. Jesus has grace. Jesus Jesus forgives sin. Yes, but just because Jesus forgives it, does that mean it's okay for you to do it just because He's going to forgive you for it? In the words of Paul, Paul says, certainly not. So, in our living room, in our house, we have two light sources. We've got the big light on the ceiling fan, and we've got the little light, which is the lamp by the couch. When the sun goes down, I don't like the big light. I like it to be kind of mellow. I like the lamp on. Emily likes it to be really bright, so she likes the ceiling fan. So, if I love Emily... Which light am I going to be okay with? The big one. It doesn't matter that my preference might be something else. 
because I love her and because she is important to me, even though she would forgive me if I just turned the little lamp on. I can't really do that with a clear conscience if I know she wants to sit out there because I know that she doesn't like it. I know it's not what she likes. So because of my love for her, I do and don't do certain things. I'm not very loving if I say, oh, well, I know she doesn't like this. But right now, what I want is more important. Click, click. If you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, then you know there are certain things he's okay with and certain things he's not okay with. Say, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Well, then why are you living in this sin? Because he's a gracious God. He'll forgive me. You don't love him. Well, Josh, that's bold. You don't know my life. Well, if I can see it, I, I know all I need to. Y'all, you can't be around me for 10, 15 minutes without me talking about my wife or my baby. Why? Because I love them. They're a huge part of my life. Can somebody be around you for 10 or 15 minutes without seeing your love for Jesus? Without hearing it? Can they see the way you live? Because if you profess to know Jesus, if you profess to know His grace, if you profess to have been to the cross and been forgiven of your sin, y'all, if it's serious enough that Jesus had to die and shed His blood to forgive it, is it really something that you want to joyfully keep doing? If you can joyfully keep doing something that led to Jesus dying for you, I question whether or not you value His shed blood. But if you grieve your sin and say, you know what? I understand that it might not be a big deal to everybody else. It might not be a problem to everybody else. They might not care. But my Jesus cares. He died for me. He shed His blood for me. Sure, I could, I, I could do all this over here and nobody would ever say a word to me about it. In fact, they might understand it because they do it too. But I'm not concerned about what they like. I'm not concerned about what they care about. I'm only concerned about Jesus because He's my God and I love Him. So I don't want to grieve Him. That to me is what a life that loves Jesus looks like. Christian has boundaries. There's a certain way Christians live their lives. The term Christian has boundaries. Are you in them? And second, the term Christian implies a shared experience. Look at starting in verse 2. <clears throat> and I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. Now, John doesn't mean that it was water and that it was thunder. You ever stood by a waterfall? Is it quiet? No. And I don't mean like, I don't mean like a waterfall showerhead. Okay? I mean like Niagara or something like that where it's just deafening. It's loud, isn't it? How about thunder? You ever had thunder be right next door to your house and you feel your guts rumble because it's just so booming? Is it quiet? No, it's not. What John is saying is the music that he heard, the sound that he heard from heaven was loud. Y'all, if y'all think heaven's going to be a quiet, peaceful place, 
I hate to tell you. <laughs> it's going to be loud. But y'all, loud is not bad. You can have peaceful and loud. It will be loud because it will be the greatest party in the history of the universe. That's okay. God's throwing it. It's like, well, I don't like loud parties. You will like that one. You will like that one. And then I love this, this next, this next uh, phrase in Greek. If you were to literally translate it, the New King James says, I heard the sound of uh, um, um, harpists playing their harps. If you literally translate it in Greek, it comes out, I heard the sound of harpists harping their harps. That's the way it's written. There's no exegetical benefit to that other than me telling you it sounds funny. But that's literally what it says. Um, and it says, they sang... Now, this would be the 144,000. As it were, a new song before the throne. Before the four living creatures and the elders, they show back up from the beginning of the book. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were what? Redeemed from the earth. Now, I understand that all of us in this room can pull out the hymnal and sing redeemed how I love to proclaim it redeemed by the blood of the lamb redeemed redeemed his child and forever I am and we can all get out our hymnal and we can all sing that song and you go well this obviously is not talking about that song oh yes it is might not be those exact words but Every single one of us might can sing the words to that song, but to somebody who's been redeemed, it, it means something different, doesn't it? You ever heard me pray, Lord, give us a spirit to sing like we've got something to sing about? If you've been redeemed, and you say, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, then when you're hearing those words your mind probably goes back to the moment when Jesus did redeem you. You think about when God saved you. You think not just about when He saved you, but you think about what He saved you from. You can think about your life and you can point to it and say, if it was not for the blood of Jesus, I would be in hell, jail, or a ditch somewhere. Think about yourself for just a second, Christians. If Jesus had not saved you, where and what and who would you be? If that doesn't make you want to sing, I don't know what will. Because I know who I would be and it ain't pretty. And every one of us, maybe a different image comes into our mind when we think that. But it's the same story, isn't it? That I was a broken, busted, tore up from the floor up person who would be following all of my baser human instincts in service purely to myself and on a comfortable bus to hell, none the wiser. And then all of a sudden... Jesus comes in out of nowhere, convicts me by the Holy Spirit, and says, Josh, do you know that you're lost? Do you know that you can live the rest of your life 
seemingly fulfilling everything that you think there is for you, and then one day stand before your Maker and desire nothing more than to be with Him forever because you've never seen such beauty, such goodness, and never experienced such peace. And when you reach out to say, I'm glad I'm home, you put your, he, he, Him put His hand out to you and say, depart from me, I never knew you. And understanding that Jesus said that's what you were headed for before I died for you, before I bled for you, before I purchased you and adopted you and you became one of my own. And at that point, that's when you can raise your hands and say, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That that belongs to me now. That I can sing that because I've experienced that. But do you know what? You can sing those words having never experienced it and it's not going to do a thing for you. You can sing that song and be just as dead and lost. See, you might know the words, but you don't know the music. It doesn't get down in your soul. It's not part of you. That... It's the redemption from the earth that allows them to sing this song. Now, what's the loud song from heaven? What's the loud sound from heaven that these redeemed on earth, that these 144,000, why is it so loud in heaven? Well, I tend to think probably because that's where we are chiming in. These aren't the only people singing this song. The other redeemed are singing this song too. Do you know who's not singing this song? Those who worship the beast. Those who worship false gods. Those who are on earth deciding, nah, I don't need God. I don't need what He's offering. He's just made up anyway. It's a bunch of made up rules to keep me from doing things that I enjoy. There's better out there. They can't sing that song. Being able to learn that song without sharing the experience isn't possible. Listen to Philippians 3, 7-11. Paul says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, as refuse, as garbage. <coughs> That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. And this is what Paul wanted more than anything else. That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That we as Christians all share, if you know Christ, you share in that experience. That we all share in the Christian experience if we know Jesus. Every single one of us can tell some of the same stories. Times that we thought we knew better than God, but God gently corrected us. Times when we were broken down and had no encouragement that we could find anywhere, but the Holy Spirit gave us peace in our hearts and comfort and said, you know what, I'm with you. Times when you said, God, God, you don't know what you're doing. And God said, shh, child, yes I do. Times when daddy took you out behind the woodshed and you didn't like it then, but you appreciated it later because you learned something that you wouldn't have if he didn't. Every single one of us as Christians, we have those stories, don't we? 
Now your story might not be the same as mine, but it follows the same pattern. But if you can say, well, wait a minute, Josh, my Christian life, I've never had anything like that. God's never given me peace. God's never taken me out behind the woodshed. God's never disciplined me. Well, you know who doesn't discipline a child? Somebody who's not their parents. I go pick Margaret up from daycare sometimes. Man, I see other kids running around like their hair's on fire. Saying things and doing things that I wouldn't let Margaret do. But you know why I don't discipline them? They're not mine. Pick Margaret up from daycare. Margaret, what'd you do at daycare today? I'm not slapping anybody in the face. I'm like, well, that's good, baby. You shouldn't do that. But it concerns me because if you didn't do that today, that means there's a day you did. What's daddy do if you slap somebody in the face? Spank or time out. That's right. Yes. Y'all, so sue me. I spanked my child. Get mad or get glad. It's happening. But you know what? Because I discipline her, she knows what's good and what's not. And I discipline her because I love her and she belongs to me. Now, does it mean that I don't love other kids? No, it just means I don't possess that unique parental child relationship with them that I do with mine. So if God's never disciplined you, if God's never corrected you, if God's never picked you up and comforted you, if God's never taught you a lesson, it might be because He's not your dad. He can be. But if you don't share that experience with us, all Christians in the world share the story of redemption having come to Christ to be conformed to His death so that we can join Him in His life. Are you in? Have you ever experienced any of that? term Christian has a shared experience. And finally, the term Christian implies a godly lifestyle. And this is one of the more difficult parts of this text because there's some pretty controversial stuff uh, in here if you interpret it incorrectly. Look at verse 4. It says, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. So let's talk about this for just a second. The New Testament makes it clear that marriage is not to be frowned upon. This is not saying that marriage is impure, that marriage is wrong, that marriage is defiling. That's not what he's saying. However, there is a specific calling that exists for special servants of God, those who are not bound to care for a wife or a family because they have been given the gift of celibacy. If you've got the gift of celibacy, you know it. And there are not many who are. But it does exist in the New Testament. They are few and far between, but they do exist. And these people are part of that group. Paul says, this is not on your handout, but just so you know I'm not making this up. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32-35, But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. 
Stapleton, this is the order that your pastor is concerned about himself in. First, I'm concerned about myself as a child of God. Second, I'm concerned about myself as a husband. Third, I'm concerned about myself as a father. Fourth, I'm concerned about myself as your pastor. You need to understand that I will always put my wife and child above you. Because if I don't, I'm a bad pastor. Every calling in my life is contingent about, about how well I perform the one above it. If, I'm a, if I am a good child of God, I will be a good husband. If I'm a good husband, I'll be a good father. If I'm a good father, I will be a good pastor. But I can't be a good pastor without being a good father. And I can't be a good father without being a good husband. And I can't be a good husband if I'm not a good child of God. It has to work in that order. But if I'm on the mission field and I don't have a wife and I don't have a child, guess what? I don't have these two to worry about. I'm concerned about my relationship with God and the people He sent me to. That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying if you don't have that family, there's nothing wrong with having a family. It's a good thing. But what he's saying is that these 144,000 people have foregone. And y'all, families are blessings, aren't they? They're so good. Man, nothing dug me out of the dumps of Georgia losing yesterday like my daughter. I've never been so happy to put a diaper on a baby doll in my life. Families are good. I love it. But, I mean, admit it. Think about how much less emotional baggage there is if God says, I want you to pick up and move to Africa. If it's just me, okay. But it's not just me, is it? I gotta think about my wife, I gotta think about my daughter. Doesn't mean you don't do it, it just means it's harder. By the way, I'm not saying God has called me to do that. I'm just saying hypothetically. That's what Paul's talking about when he says there are certain people that are given that gift. It's not that marriage is bad. It's not that families are bad. It's that they can provide complications. Good complications, but complications. These 144,000 don't have that. The only relationship they're concerned about is theirs with God. Second, they're not geographically bound to one place. Look at them. It says they follow, they're the ones that follow the Lamb wherever He goes. If Jesus sends them somewhere new, they pick up and go. They never put down roots. Matthew 8, 19-20, a certain scribe came to Him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. That These folks have no concern for, well, I don't know if I'll be able to buy a house. I don't know if I'll be able to build equity. I don't know if I like, you know, this or that or, you know, what's the shopping like in the area? What are the demographics like in the area? Is there is there good food? Is there, you know, they're not concerned about that. If Jesus says you go there, you go there. Then their first fruits to God and the Lamb. That's what it says. That they were redeemed from among, from among men being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Do you know in the Old Testament, under the law, all firstborn and first fruits belonged to God. This group viewed themselves as having no claim whatsoever on their own lives. They were completely dead to themselves. 
Exodus 34, 19 in the first half of 20 says, All that open the womb are mine. Every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. Exodus 34, 36, The first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord. The first of everything under the Old Testament law belong to God. And this is a very Jewish chapter. So to say that these are first fruits to God and to the Lamb, that says... They belong to God completely, totally, and entirely. They don't have any claim on their own lives. They view themselves as dead already. The only reason they are not dead is because Jesus has redeemed them. They have been bought back. He owns them. They are His purposes for His use. No hesitation whatsoever. This lifestyle and relationship with Christ leads them to have no deceit in their mouths and them being without fault before the throne of God. They are ethically pure. Now talking about no deceit found in one's mouth, which is what John says about these, they're following the model of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 21-23 says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps. Verse 22, Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. That These 144,000 follow the example of Jesus. How Jesus lived, that's how they lived. How Jesus spoke, that's how they spoke. How Jesus worked, that's how they work. How Jesus loved, that's how they loved. They completely model their lives after His. They walk with Him so closely that they resemble Him. This is on your handout. 1 Peter 1, 13-16 Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. That means be self-controlled. That means be present. Think about how you're living. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now Josh, I thought you told me you were never going to preach works righteousness. Aren't we saved by grace? Yes, you are. You are saved by grace. Jesus doesn't save you because you try really hard. Jesus doesn't save you because you work really hard. Jesus saves you because He loves you. He saves you by His work. He he saves you by His blood. He saves you by His resurrection. It's all grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a gift to you. That being said, Jesus is holy. We are to look like Jesus. So if Jesus is holy, how ought we be? Holy. Holy means set apart. Your mind belongs to Jesus. Think like Him. Your hands belong to Jesus. Work like Him. Your body belongs to Jesus. Live like Him. Your mouth belongs to Jesus. Speak like Him. 
If you are a Christian, the Bible very literally means He purchased you. He owns you. If you are a Christian, now we don't always do good recognizing this, do we, church? (laughs) We can mess up. And God is a God of grace. He understands that we are but flesh. He's not going to throw you out of the family for making a a bad call any more than you throw your kids out of the family before they make a bad call. And if you threw your kids out of the family because they made a bad call, you need to repent and and go tell them you shouldn't have done that. He's not going to chunk you out of the family. But have you ever looked at your kids and said, that's not what we do in this family? I see parents nodding. I said that to Margaret one time. She said, family? She doesn't know what that means, but she's learning. That inside the family of Christ, God looks at us and says, this is how we do things in this family. We ought to live like Jesus if we've been saved by Jesus. We don't do good works so He'll save us. We do good works because He saved us. Ephesians 2 says He prepared those good works beforehand intending us to walk in them. That He's got a plan for you to live a holy life. He intends you to do it. So if you tell me you belong to Jesus but I don't see you at least endeavoring by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a holy life, I want to question your salvation. If you claim to be a Christian, do you seek to live a holy holy life? My buddy Jason, who's a pastor I grew up under, said if you know Jesus, you will live holier on accident than you ever lived on purpose before knowing Him. It should flow naturally from your relationship with Christ. 